I wish I could make this taller. All right, uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be studying Matthew 12 here in a few minutes. So if you want to turn to Matthew 12, it's the first book, first book of the New Testament. We have been working our way through a series called We Are Restore. And what we've been talking about is who God has called us to be. So our mission, like what does our journey look like as followers of Christ? And then what is the culture that's forming around this path that we're on? It's like, so we travel this path. There's a... Uh, I don't remember the phrase exactly, but um, it was something, there was a Jewish saying that talked about, like, may you, may you walk in the dust of your rabbi, because when they would walk on the path, dust would kick up as they followed their rabbi, and Jesus is our rabbi. So when we're following him on mission, this dust is going to kick up, and that dust is what we call our culture. Like, what are the tangible qualities uh, of our community as we pursue Jesus and follow him on this mission? So I want to just do a quick recap. Our mission... For any of you who have experienced God, church, Jesus, and you have found it to be bland or um, shallow or legalistic, and, and you just like, you're not angry, but you thought, I don't really need that. That's who we exist for. That's who our community wants to connect with and invite onto the journey. And there's a word for that that uh, sociologists and, and uh, like Pew Research you know, firm talk about, and it's called the de-churched. It's people who have... Uh, experience church, and they just don't really want anything to do with it anymore. And I think, I'm subjectively biased opinion, that we have a community that's attractive to, to people who have experienced church in that way. I think we've all wrestled with that. We've all questioned God. We've all questioned uh, religion. I think many of us in that room have experienced that, and we have found it wanting, and we want to go deep. We want to experience what it's like not to follow religion, but to follow Jesus. And there's a big difference between that. And so we haven't got it all figured out, <clears throat> but we are enjoying the journey of depth and of texture of what it means to follow Jesus into an alternative kingdom, an alternative reality. So that's our mission. And we're constantly trying to invite people onto that journey with us. And now the culture that's forming around that is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks and over the next few weeks. So two weeks ago, I talked about this word inclusion. And there's a watered-down version of it floating around in our culture of people throwing that word out. But I've discovered, based on my interactions with people, that the practice of it is not there. The word gets thrown out a lot, but we don't understand what it's like to be radically inclusive of others. And we think Jesus kind of cornered the market on that. And so if you want to check that out, uh, it's on, you can listen to our past teachings online. That was two weeks ago. Last week, I talked about authentic community which when you look at Acts 2, when the early church was meeting and hanging out together, it was, we, it's lost on us now, uh, 2,000 years later, but it was a radically uh, subversive movement. It was, a, it was a rebellious movement to live in that kind of community with other people in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so authentic community is a move against Caesar, against empire. All right? It's to flow away and to draw others back into restoration, into a more beautiful way of living. And, and uh, I would encourage you to check that out. That was last week. And today, we move into justice, which is really hard to narrow down in a 20-minute teaching. Like, what does justice mean? What, is, uh, what does it look like to, for that culture to, to be a part of a, a justice-oriented culture? So in order to prepare for this, I've been watching The People versus O.J. Simpson on Netflix. <laughs> 
it, it doesn't do a great job of defining biblical justice, but it's a fascinating show. And if you're in your, I don't know, maybe, I think you probably have to be in your 30s to remember the OJ trial. Uh, 20s, I hear, I see, okay, there's people in their 20s who remember the OJ verdict and the whole trial. Um, the show is phenomenal. Like, I'm two episodes in, and I'm hooked. And I'm reliving all of these memories of, like, Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark and Lance Ito and all these names are coming back to me from when I was in high school and this was actually occurring. And do you, does anybody remember where they were when the verdict came in? Anybody remember that specifically? I remember where I was, who I was sitting next to, what I was wearing, what the person next to me was wearing. It was that big of a deal. For some reason, I was a sophomore in high school, and it was a really hot, it was like the first um, real reality show. Like we could see in the courtroom, and I was in our high school journalism class, we watched it every day. In journalism class, our teacher would turn it on every day, and we would watch parts of the trial because we were just fascinated by it. And I remember when the verdict came in, um, I was so shocked that so many of my classmates believed the verdict. They thought he was innocent. I was just, I'm like, how do you think this dude is innocent? And he was, technically, I guess, by the court of law. But it was controversial, to say the least, because he was later found guilty in civil court. But thinking about uh, watching the show, you know, and thinking about justice and thinking about all these names, like, Mark Furman and Robert Kardashian. Yes, that Kardashian. All right, Kim's dad uh, was heavily involved, and I'd forgotten about that until I was watching the show. But when you think about the way that our culture defines justice, some people would look at that, watch that show, or you remember that verdict, and you look at that, and you think that's how our culture defines justice, the way that played out. And this happens, you know, thousands of times probably every day throughout the U.S. in different courts of law of people experiencing the American form of justice. And it's not like the Christ-like form of justice is radically different. It's a little, this is a, a little bit more unique. I think the Christian version of justice is more textured and layered than the black and white, clear-cut uh, example of justice that we see exhibited in our culture. So let's compare the two. So if we look at first century Greco-Roman world, Justice carried a different connotation then than it does now in our 21st century Western world. So I saw a comparison in a really good book called The End of Religion by Bruxy Cavey. I'm going to give like a quick paraphrase or summary of kind of what he said. So our current cultural justice, uh, we have a tendency to think that laws exist to keep order and to keep people in line. So law and justice can have a, a, a nature of maintenance. Uh, of protection. Uh, it can feel impersonal. Um, if you've ever watched any kind of courtroom, real courtroom, not like TV courtroom, but actual courtroom, it, 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 they try to eliminate all the emotions and outbursts. There's, no, there's not like a relational feel to it. Now that's not true all the time, but it just has a tendency to feel that way. So laws, order, keeping people in line, that's not bad, but there's a richer texture to justice that we can discover when we're following Christ. So the first century Judeo-Christian justice, the law was fulfilled in Jesus. So when we think about the law as Christians, we think our, our minds automatically, automatically go to Jesus. And he exists to change the world. So in our culture, laws exist to keep people in line, to keep order. But with Jesus, laws exist to change the world. And he is the only law. He is the only rule. So it comes off as a little bit more relational. The biblical word for that is covenantal. 
when we think about justice. There's a relationship involved. There's a covenant involved. So it's important to understand that subtle but powerful difference in this relational justice and this covenantal justice. And so I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament to talk about covenant, but if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first covenant that was formed was with a man named Abram. And the covenant that God made with him was essentially saying uh, it meant no wrong could ruin the relationship. And if you look through the Old Testament, humanity did their best to ruin the relationship over and over and over. And we see God, uh, there's justice involved, but we also see a relationship, a pursuit. There's never a breaking of that covenant. God never leaves. So Judeo-Christian justice occurred in, occurs in its most effective manner within the context of relationship. So now, knowing that subtle difference, let's move to Jesus. So we, as Christians, what we believe is we define everything by Christ. He is our only law. He is our only king. So we start with him. Who was he? What did he say about justice? How did he define justice? That's what we have to look at. And so there's four biographies of Christ in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew talks about justice twice as often as the next closest author, Luke. He talks, it's mentioned 24 times in the book of Matthew. Luke only mentions it 12 times. I think Mark and John are like two or three times each. So we're going to go on a journey through Matthew to just see, okay, why did this word come up so much more often in his biography of Jesus? So we're going to talk about who is Jesus? What did he say? How did he define justice? So let's start with Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 18 through 21. And it's going to be on screen. <clears throat> um, this is what Matthew, he's quoting the Old Testament to describe Jesus. He says, here's my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. So this word proclaim, I want to focus in on that. Proclaim justice to the nations. Proclaim means to announce in an official and public manner to the nations. So essentially what Matthew is saying is, Jesus is justice. Proxy Cave, it puts it like this. When God opens his mouth to communicate his heart for humanity, a person comes out. Jesus is justice personified. Jesus is justice with skin on. So we can look at, we can read definitions of justice, but if we want to know what it looks like, we look at Jesus, according to Matthew. Now let's look at what Jesus said. Later on in Matthew, in Matthew 23, verse 23 he, he, he's going at the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he is judging them. He is pointing out flaws and calling people out. So Jesus is the judge of justice. Did you know 25% of the words or so? There's a theologian that says that 25% of the words that Jesus uses in the New Testament relate to justice or relate to judgment. That's pretty interesting to think about that he spends that much time <clears throat> judging what is occurring in front of him. And now let's define. It's not like Jesus, uh, it's not like the Bible's a dictionary. 
and we just get to read all these definitions of what he means. So we have to look beneath what he's saying. So I think the best definition of justice that he gives us in the New Testament is in uh, Matthew 5 through 7, but we're not going to read all three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been a part of Restore for a while, you're like, we've heard enough about the Sermon on the Mount. Move on. So let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, and we're going to shorten it, and it's going to be verses 31 through 45. And I think this is particularly relevant right now with what's going on in our world. Here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And I'm, I'm going to stop there. I just want to leave it at that. Like that, that is a, a great picture of the type of lives and kingdom we're supposed to live in when it comes to justice. Um, there's a theologian, uh, Dio Villa Jr., he said, the criterion of judgment in this scene is deeds done for the least of these, actions rightly understood as embodying justice and mercy. So if we want to know what it looks like, the definition, right there. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And we can run with that. And that is not how our culture defines justice, but that is how Jesus defines justice. So if you want to go even deeper, I mentioned Matthew 5 through 7. Um, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want like Christian Ethics 101, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's extremely powerful. And when you read it, you will realize this is impossible. This is borderline silly for me to try to live this way. And the only way we could live those type of ethics is if we had someone leading us and showing us how to do it. Because it's impossible to do on our own. Like enemy love, self-sacrifice, forgiveness. When you actually try to do those things, it's really, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit to forgive others or to love your enemies. So to recap, Jesus is justice. He is the judge. And he is the institutor of the criteria and ethics of justice. And we can continue throughout Scripture. So I want to do two more examples of how we see justice playing out in Scripture. And I'm not going to read the verses. Um, I would encourage you to check them out later. I'm just going to summarize what we see. Like in Acts chapter 2, uh, this guy named Paul, uh, who was a Pharisee, became a Christian, started following Jesus. He's in the midst of telling uh, a large crowd the gospel story. He's telling them about who Jesus is and what he means. And he says uh, something that is what we talked about two weeks ago. He says something that's radically inclusive. He says, Jesus is for everybody, and the crowds get pissed. They start rioting. They start calling for his life because when push comes to shove, people like to tie strings to their love. They like to keep 
God's love in a box and not want to share it with absolutely everybody. And this is pervasive. It has been, it is now, and it has always been. So they get really mad at Paul, and a riot ensues. And the Roman authorities step in because Paul's basically incited a riot, and they're going to imprison him. So they grab him, they tie him to a pole, they're going to whip him. And they're not just going to whip him like with a rod or with a whip, they're going to scourge him, which is what Jesus had happened to him. A scourging is when they tie uh, little pieces of bone and metal to the ends of the leather straps, and when you whip someone, it sticks into their flesh and then rips flesh off of their back. A lot of people would die from the scourging before they were put to death. So that's what is getting ready to happen to Paul. So now, he allows them to tie him, tie him up, and right before they're getting ready to whip him, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, by the way. And the reason that is so significant is because it's illegal for him to be bound if he hasn't had due process. He knows the law. He knows Roman law. He's a Roman citizen, and he's a former Pharisee, so he, he loves the law. He loves rules. He loves regulations, and he uses them in a brilliant manner. He gains leverage, and they, start, they get nervous. The Roman authorities are like, wait, you're a Roman citizen? And they know they've done something wrong simply by binding him. And then he's released. So Paul's wisdom of the law, he used it to his advantage to be released uh, so that he could continue furthering the, the gospel story and telling it to more people. And now if you look at the very beginning of the story of Christ, when he was born, within the first two years, King Herod, the Roman ruler, got wind of this new king. He's angry about it. He, he puts out an executive order. Um, which is kind of like a buzzword right now. Everybody flinched when I said that. Puts out an executive order for all male babies under two years old to be murdered. And Joseph and Mary have to flee. They go to Egypt. They are refugees. Jesus was a refugee. So they flee this executive order because of the law that was put down. They've got to get away from it. They are lit. If you think about it, Joseph and Mary were literally carrying justice. If Jesus is the definition... They were carrying him. They were saving justice by disobeying the Roman order, the Roman law. So they flee to Egypt. So this is what we see, some of the examples we see throughout Scripture. This is a, a rudimentary theology of what justice is by looking at these different stories. So what do we see? What are our conclusions? Like how do we kind of narrow this stuff down to at, at form like a, a basic understanding of, of Christ-like justice? So number one, justice occurs through relational means. We see this throughout Scripture. Proximity, touch, nearness, love. You ever see Jesus talking behind someone's back when he's judging? Never. It is always to their face within the context of relationship. Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees. That might be a, a myth you've heard. He loved them. He wanted them to understand who he was and the power that came with following him. So when he judged them, in like Matthew 23, he wasn't condemning them to hell. He's saying, come on, wake up. Change the way you're living. And it was within that nearness. So justice is most effective within the context of unconditional love. Amen. That's when it occurs. It can occur without that. But at its deepest level, it occurs within relationship. It's kind of like marriage. You can have a great marriage without God, but you can't reach its capacity without him. It gets better with him involved. Same thing with justice. It's going to take you into a deeper meaning and a more beautiful uh, picture of justice when relationship is involved. Covenant. The second thing, in Matt, like Matthew 23, 23, Jesus essentially lays the smack down to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders here. 
And uh, my professor, Scott, McKnight, Scott McKnight, said, there is no justice without judgment. And he's right. You have to judge. You have to appraise the situation in order to deliver justice. So we can't talk about pri proper Christ-like understanding of justice if we don't understand Christ-like judgment. And it's a really misunderstood concept. Uh, in particular, Matthew 7.1 is one of the most misunderstood uh, quoted out of context script, scriptures and Jesus' words that we see in the Bible. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right, so first of all, people like to stop when they hear, do not judge. They just stop his words there. And they're like, don't judge. Don't ever do that. And they don't understand, they don't even understand the Greek definition of the word. The Greek word is krino, which means to separate, make a distinction between, exercise judgment upon, to estimate, or appraise. It does not say you are condemning someone to hell when you judge them. That's not how we do things in Christianity. We do not have that right or that role to, to tell someone where they're headed all right, it's, it, it is just an appraisal. It's an estimation of what we see occurring in front of us. So that's important to remember, the actual definition that, that Jesus is using there. And second, Jesus doesn't stop at that phrase, do not judge. He continues on. What he's saying, he's talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's trying to catch their attention. These are people who love to judge, and they love to use judgment to elevate themselves above, above other people. Like, oh, you're doing this, you're not doing this right, or you're breaking that law or this rule, I'm better than you. They use it as a step stool right, uh, to raise himself up. And Jesus says, stop doing that. He catches, he's like kind of grabbing them verbally. Don't judge, change it. And then he continues to speak. And here's what we can tell what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you judge, you, you're going to be judged as well. And you're going to be judged in the same way by God that you judge others. So he's saying, judge generously. Consider your tone and your motive when you're judging other people. You can't judge someone when your motives are impure, outside of the context of relationship. So he's not condemning judgment. He's just saying, it goes both ways. So remember that. Generous love. Gentle words. This is how Jesus is calling us to judge and to live in relationship when, in regards to justice. So judgment is a part of being justice, uh, of justice being delivered, and we have to remember that. Now let's go to Paul. Paul was formerly a Pharisee. You know, they were well-known inf infamous for making laws, like we've talked about. But when Paul became a Christian, he stopped making laws because Jesus is the law. He is, he is the bar. So the law has been fulfilled. So what we see Paul doing throughout Scripture is when he's faced with kingdom opportunity, he would break laws. And he would also use them to his kingdom advantage. So he didn't make laws. He broke them when necessary. And he used them if it furthered the gospel story. And then if we look at the last story I shared, Joseph and Mary, they fled an executive order. Um, to save justice, to save Jesus. So here's what we see in Scripture. It seems that when laws conflict with Christians' definition of justice, we don't obey them. We, we, we operate by a different set of rules. So um, if you want my opinion, that's our theology. All right, now that, that's our basic framework of justice. Now if you want my opinion, 
on how our theology of justice should play out and like in our lives and our mission and in the methods that we live, I emphasize opinion because I'm going to share some opinions that might be a little controversial, I don't know, uh, but wrestle with them and question them because I'm not going to be quoting scripture. This is just strictly Aaron throwing out his opinion of how we should live out our theology. So the first thing, I think we should draw near to people, actually be in friendship and relationship with the least of these. So people who are marginalized, bullied, pushed away, we should be friends with them. They're not our projects. They're not our, um, we're not their lawyers necessarily. We are their friend first. Form relationships with the type of people who Jesus formed a relationship with. I also, the, the second thing is I think we should reserve judgment of others, like appraisal of others, um, for if we're in un, a covenantal, unconditionally loving relationship with them. So, for example, if you have a judgment about immigrants and refugees, you need to keep your judgment to yourself unless you actually know one or many and you're friends with them. Or if you have a judgment, I mean, you could fill it in. Take a people group that's associated with something, and if you have a judgment about them, but you don't know them, you're not allowed to judge them. You cannot judge someone if you're not in relationship with them. That is our theology of justice. And that would change the game of life if we actually lived that out. If we're like, you know what, I am not going to judge someone unless I am friends with them. That would, can you think about the divides that would just come down in our culture if more Christians lived out that type of justice? And I don't think we're ever going to get bored delivering this message because there's a lot of Christians who have a really flawed understanding of what I'm talking about. And we, we have uh, an eternal mission to share this type of good news, this type of justice with others. And the best, the most inspirational way to do that is to actually live it out. Amen. Uh, to me, I think you know, we're sending our third group uh, to, to Lesbos, to Greece, to serve in a UN camp, to serve Syrian refugees. And I think, I think it's pretty awesome. But I don't think it should be shocking. And it's shocking to people in my life that Christians would you know, essentially go against what our government has instituted. Because once again, we, executive orders don't mean anything to us if they conflict with our theology of who Jesus is and that type of justice. And I see that it's, I think people are inspired by the people that are going on these trips. Uh, I see that, um, but I, I'm still, I'm kind of shocked that like, why is this news? Like there should be, this should be happening all the time with Christians, but there's a lot of people who don't feel the freedom and the joy of pursuing uh, the Christ-like definition of justice. And so we're never going to get bored. We get to just live it out. Just people watching you live this out, it's going to change people's lives because it's so radical, it's so new, it's so beautiful. Um, and then the third thing that I, I think should inform our, you know, our theology informing the way we live is don't concern ourselves so much with making laws. Uh, I don't like to concern myself with the cultivation of power and authority. That's just not, it's not our thing. Because you look at Jesus, he was a king that constantly gave his power away. He just gave his authority away all the time to the point where he hung on the cross. That, that's, we, don't, we don't participate in the building of power and authority and of empire. Instead, we just break them when it's necessary and we use them to our advantage 
when it comes to like defending people who are marginalized or bullied, we do what Paul did. We use them to our advantage. So think about that um, in, in whatever context you live in. Um, having the freedom, uh, remember, we are not under the burden of law anymore. We are un- under the beauty of following Christ, and it should change the way that we live. So this is how Restore Church tries to live this out uh, in a number of ways. We care about the immigrant and the refugee. I mean, it's abundantly clear to us that that is a need and that is a passion and a, and a, and a desire and a joy of ours uh, to welcome, include, and be in friendship <clears throat> with immigrants and refugees. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, we, are, we support Claim, which is a growing nonprofit pro bono law group that meets twice a month in our living room space to represent people who are bullied and marginalized and who, who can't afford rep- legal representation, who can't afford biblical justice. We have attorneys in our church, and it's a growing number outside of our church who want to step into these people's lives and serve them. We partner with a wider circle, which is a local Silver Spring nonprofit that is lifting people out of poverty. We partner with Community Vision, which cares for the basic needs uh, of our homeless friends and trying to guide them to a more sustainable life. And then we partner with Servant Group International, which has been serving uh, Muslim people in the Mideast for 30 years or so. Uh, And we think they are kind of our mentor and our guide when it comes to uh, being in friendship, relationship, delivering justice to the lives of Muslim refugees. So the, and I'm sure that list will grow uh, as far as restores involvement. But think about this also to close today. Personalize this for you. You know, when it comes to justice, we can talk about these big theological concepts or what's, what's our whole church doing. Personalize this. Uh, you need to invite judgment into your life from Christ. Amen. Let him judge you. Uh, he's the one judge that you can fully trust. He's the one person that can point at your thoughts and your actions and define them and challenge them because no one is going to be closer to you than him. And so if you're afraid of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're, you've got like long-term guilt or, or coping from past events or, or, or current bad decisions, you have complete freedom to be judged by him. Right? He is your advocate. He, he wants to draw you into deeper into the kingdom. So invite his judgment into your life because justice for others begins with judgment of you. That's where it starts, is letting him in there. Now, if there's a people group, think about this also. I think it's very easy for us to identify enemies. Everybody could, in this room could identify someone they don't like for some reason, and it's probably justified in many uh, cases. But what I, would incur- what I would challenge you to do is think about a person or a people group, and you've had a chip on your shoulder towards them. That, that God wants to remove that chip. So you need to put judgment of them aside and do your best to become friends with them first, to have a healthy, loving, covenantal relationship with them because you can't judge at its deepest, purest manner outside of relationship. Justice occurs at its deepest level within relationship. Let's pray.